What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from Off Guard, and I've got some exciting news. Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy Pasha Hagigi, is officially moving to our own podcast feed. We are now dropping two shows every week. Me and Pasha go way back and talk so much hoops already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on these conversations. Every week, Pasha and myself will hit on the biggest stories happening around the league. Tap into the show twice a week on our new Off Guard feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Loaded pod. Chad Finn from The Globe is going to join us. Chad has a great article up at The Globe right now and in The Globe magazine about Cooper Flag. And if you're not familiar with Cooper Flag, you're going to be familiar with Cooper Flag in the very near future. He's going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft. Most of you know this if you're basketball fans, but he's going to be the number one pick in the 2025 NBA draft. He's going to Duke next year. And he's from Maine. The number one pick in the NBA draft is from Maine. So this is a guy that he's been a really big time prospect for a while now. But over the past, I'd say year and a half, he took a major jump. So we got into that with Chad. It's a ton of fun to talk about. I can't wait to see him play at Duke. I can't wait to see him in the NBA. And I just think it's a really cool story. Some great insight from Chad on it. He actually has a really good NBA comparison to... Cooper Flag as well. Somebody that I think Celtics fans will like the comparison to. The only unfortunate thing is he's not going to be a Celtic. Well, at least at his first contract. Maybe at his second contract. Maybe at his third contract. But definitely not in this first because he's going to go number one overall. So we'll get to talk to Chad about that in just a little bit. So how about the Falcons, by the way, as we get started here? They hire Raheem Morris as their head coach. This is the only job that Bill Belichick interviewed for. The only one. The Chargers... They're in a position right now where I thought at one point during the season, remember I threw them out that, hey, the Chargers, that could be the destination. But then Jim Harbaugh comes available and they have a quarterback. They're trying to get better with their quarterback, with their consistency, because their quarterback's promising, but you feel like you can get more out of that team. Well, you hire Jim Harbaugh. Makes total sense from the Chargers. So that was out the window for Bill. The Chargers really weren't interested in him. You look around the league now in terms of the job openings. The Commanders and the Seahawks. And it was widely reported once this whole thing sort of started that the Commanders were not interested in Bill Belichick. 
They hired Adam Peters as their GM. They have, and Adam Peters did spend some time with the Patriots. They have a new owner in Josh Harris. So their whole idea is, hey, they want to identify their own guy. They want to find the next great head coach in the NFL. And they're very analytically driven now in that organization. Bill Belichick's not going to Washington, even if you make the connection to Annapolis, etc. He's not going to Washington. That leaves Seattle. They Unless something dramatically changes as one of these two teams. Seattle, they just fired their 72-year-old head coach. They're not going to hire a 71-year-old head coach. Why would they do that if they just fi- fired the 72-year-old? So Bill is going to be without a job. There's not a head coaching opportunity right now for Bill Belichick. Unless, 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 unless like I said, the craziness happens and Washington or Seattle out of the blue decides, hey, we're changing our thought process with this whole thing and we're going after Bill Belichick, it's not going to happen. Bill's going to be without a job, so get ready for TV Bill. It's more likely, think about this, it's more likely that Bill is going to be on TV than coaching, something I thought I would never say. So I just want to get to a couple of angles with this. First off, Kraft has to feel good about this. Kraft moves on from the greatest coach of all time. Nobody really wants him. Raheem Morris gets the job over him. Now, Raheem Morris's coaching record, 21 and 38, okay? Now, he deserves another chance. He got the job in Tampa when he was awfully young, 33 years old. And he's been a great defensive coordinator for the Rams. He did a pretty good job when he was at Atlanta, too. So it makes sense that Raheem Morris is now getting another opportunity. They have familiarity with him in Atlanta. He deserves another opportunity. But the point being is, this is the greatest coach in the history of the NFL, And the Atlanta Falcons, one of the sorriest organizations in the NFL, didn't want Bill. Like, Kraft's got to feel pretty good about that. Hey, we moved on from Bill. Not even Atlanta wanted him, right? And we talked to Zach Klein from Channel 2 in Atlanta on our last pod, if you missed that. He explained why it wouldn't work. Bill wants all the power in Atlanta. This is what he had in New England. So it would have been what Zach said, essentially, is Rich McKay, Arthur Blank's good buddy, Would have been gone if Bill Belichick was taking over control of the team. They had a GM in place. They had a CEO in place. And they didn't want to move on from those two guys to bring in Bill Belichick. So when you hire Bill, you're giving away your franchise. And you're giving away so much of the control, right? I know Bill says or said in his end of the year press conference before the parting of the ways press conference, he would have been willing to give up personnel power. But is he really going to give up personnel power if he's Bill Belichick? Isn't he going to be the guy that's in control of the whole thing? So in other words, another organization said, you know what? We're good with this. We don't want somebody to come in and have all this power like it was in New England. And the Crafts, they decided to move on from Bill when it went south. It made sense to let Bill have all this power within the organization for basically a decade and a half because Bill was executing the plan. Even he would overcome bad stretches in terms of drafting. He would continue to win Super Bowls. But there's been this stretch here where the drafting and the poor performance on the field has all come together, right? So from Kraft's perspective, you also look at the fact that right now you think about, well, when Tom went away and Tom went to Tampa, the Crafts are watching there and they're watching Tom win a Super Bowl, right? And in the second half of the season, Tampa started rolling after an up-and-down start to the season. Then it really became Tom's offense. They win the Super Bowl. The Crafts don't even have to deal with the situation in year one with Bill because Bill's not going to be in the sidelines, right? And 
You also look at this and you say, okay, if this was mid-Belichick-Brady feud, or I should say power struggle, right? When they were having their issues, Guerrero, Garoppolo, all that stuff. Bill would get a job elsewhere right away because we wouldn't have this large sample size of bad drafts and bad results combined together. Like, we can go through some of the time during the Brady era, like really in the late 2000s into the early next decade, Bill had some bad drafts before the McCourty, the Gronks, like that group, right? Like it dried up for a little bit. And then Bill responded with great drafts to get the next dynasty underway. Gronk, McCourty, as we mentioned, Hightower, Chandler Jones, all these guys, the James Whites of the world. And they found guys under the radar, right? Malcolm Butler, an undrafted guy. So they were able to draft really well after that. And that's how they put together a dynasty was good drafts and having the greatest quarterback of all time. Then they go on the dry spell at the end of the Brady era. And then after Brady leaves, it's sort of exposed, right? Where this team is not good anymore. They're not drafting well. And we're seeing all the results of it, right? The combination has been bad over the past four years since Tom left, right? For the majority of Belichick's tenure, he could go through a spell where he didn't draft well because this happens with a ton of organizations, but they were able to overcome that on the field. That has not been the case lately. So if, say, Kraft had decided to go with Bill over Brady when Brady and Bill were having their issues. Bill would have had any job he wanted, but because he's a little bit older at 71 and because he's sort of been exposed in terms of his drafting and the team on the field, both those things being bad at the same time, there isn't as much of a market for Bill Belichick, unfortunately for him. And I would also look at this, the Crafts, Let's not dismiss the fact that they put out basically a smear campaign. If you think about some of the things, remember the Brady story from Wickersham and Wright Thompson, where Kraft says to Kraft says that, hey, after the Super Bowl that Tom won, Bill told me he couldn't play anymore and he wins the fucking Super Bowl. And then you have the whole thing about leaking stuff about the scouts insights were constantly overruled, even if all this stuff is true, right? Like, and I'm sure Kraft was pissed about that, but I keep going back to the fact that if Kraft really wanted to keep Tom, he could have moved on from Bill. So Kraft is never going to have any responsibility for that situation, never wants to. That's why he leaks stuff like this. And then like the the scouts thing we've heard before, but why are you leaking out all this information right after you parted ways with the head coach? I thought that was unfair. And they put a smear campaign out there when Bill was trying to get a new job. Like Bill's trying to move on. He's agreed to move on. And now you're putting out all this information about Bill. Even if it's true, you didn't need to do it, right? Okay, so anyway. Look, here's the thing. Maybe this works out next year for Belichick, right? This has to kill him, though, as the greatest coach of all time. He's going to lose a whole year of trying to chase down Don Shula's record, right? And then secondarily, he wants to prove he can still coach. That was an awful year for Bill. After a bad season the prior season, he wants to coach. I have to imagine this is going to eat at Bill next season, where he's just sitting back and, I would assume doing TV, maybe CBS. There should there apparently is going to be changes there, you would think, right? Now, in the long run, the one thing I will say, this could be b- good for Bill. Atlanta has no obvious route to a good quarterback, right? We've talked about this multiple times. Like, what are they going to do? They're at eight, or they get a trade up, or like maybe they go all in and try to get a guy like Kirk Cousins, but that's no guarantee, right? Because Cousins has played really well for Minnesota. I'm sure they want him back because they tried out all these quarterbacks that weren't good. So that's no guarantee. So he may not have had a real quarterback there in Atlanta. And remember, Nick Sirianni could have been gone 
after this season. They decided to keep him. Mike McCarthy could have been gone in Dallas. They decided to keep him. Sean McDermott, he could have been gone. The Bills decided to keep him. So those are three jobs we thought, I guess the Bills to a lesser extent after they won their first playoff game, but the Eagles and the Cowboys felt real. It really felt like the Cowboys were going to fire Mike McCarthy and Bill was going to be the next head coach. That's at least, it felt that way, right? And the thing about that is, okay, maybe that presents itself next year. I mean, Callahan, I was texting with Callahan, he's joking around. Maybe he Doc Rivers' way to Dallas, like he does TV for a couple of months, and then Dallas has something go wrong. They fire Mike McCarthy midseason, and they bring in Bill Belichick. So the point being is it's possible that one of these coaches is fired after next season. It's possible that all three could be fired after next season, and Bill gets to go to a team with a much better quarterback than the situation in Atlanta. But I would also say this when it comes to that. The risk of that is Bill is a year older, And secondarily, all these teams could have fired their coaches for Bill this offseason. They all knew that Belichick was out in New England, and none of them did. So even there, it's sort of a risk. So as much as I say it could be a blessing in disguise for Bill that he ends up with Dallas, Philadelphia, or Buffalo the year after this in 2025, it may not be because they may say, hey, we didn't want Bill last year. Why would we want Bill this year? So that's the interesting dynamic out of all those things is will Bill have a job in 2025. And now for a year, at least in terms of coaching football, Bill Belichick is going to be irrelevant. He's going to be out of it, out of it for the first time since what? The 1980s? Like this guy's been coaching forever. I just feel like it's going to be such a weird year for Bill. Maybe he'll do this thing where he's traveling around, talking to some of his buddies in the coaching world, visiting the Broncos with Sean Payton, you know, doing things along those lines. But Anyway, so I did want to get to a couple of other angles Patriots-wise. Steve Belichick is, remember, he was offered, him and his brother Brian were offered jobs by Gerard Mayo to stay with the organization. It appears DeMarcus Covington is the front runner to be the team's defensive coordinator. Now, Steve was going to be given basically a title of assistant head coach or and, and senior advisor if he comes back. But we'll see. I mean, maybe he gets interest from other teams across the league that are now hiring a defensive coordinator, right? Sean McVay, now like Brandon Staley is not coaching anymore. Maybe Sean McVay goes back to his old friend because Raheem Morris is now gone, obviously. As we mentioned, he's in Atlanta, so McVay is going to have to fill it up. But teams across the league are trying to fill out their coaching staff. So maybe Steve Belichick says, hey, maybe I want to go elsewhere. The other angle to this is the McDaniels angle. So it's already been reported that Zach Robinson is basically Raheem Morris's guy. It's almost like, okay, he's bringing Zach Robinson with him to be his offensive coordinator. So out of the guys the Patriots have interviewed, it really leaves Nick Cayley. And the question I have, well, McDaniels, who we assumed was going to go with Bill to Atlanta, would McDaniels come in in some sort of advisor role? Because to me, I don't really want McDaniels. I want to start over, right? McDaniels, you look at him, it's sort of safe for, say, Gerard Mayo, because McDaniels is never getting a head coaching opportunity again. And he's a proven guy that's done it. I get it that Nick Cayley doesn't have the experience, but I would what I would say about Josh McDaniels, you go back to the 2022 season, his first full year with the Raiders, because he only had one, his team was 15th in EPA per play, 21st in success rate, and 26th in red zone touchdown percentage. In the non-Brady years in his career, and by the way, his team this year got better offensively after he left. In the non-Brady years, if you just look at total points, the offenses for Josh McDaniels, 8th with Castle, and he had Moss and Welker, like 
one of the most talented teams in NFL history, 20th, 19th, 32nd when he was with St. Louis for that year, 27th with Cam, 6th with Mac, 12th and 23rd. So out of those other years, he had, what, just two top 10 finishes in terms of points. One was with Moss and Welker in a team that had previously gone undefeated. And the Mac season, you give him some credit for that. But remember, one of the things about that season, the Patriots' defense was awesome. They were forcing a bunch of turnovers. And the Pats that year were the second best starting field position in the entire league. So yeah, they deserve a lot of credit for converting the offense does, but they were also given a ton of easy opportunities. So my fear now is that McDaniels gets the gig over Nick Cayley. And what I want from Nick Cayley is, we've mentioned this before, that McVay aspect, right? He spent two years with Sean McVay. He has enough experience because the Patriots need to have people that are somehow related to the organization. Cayley's been here. I want that young guy that sort of can take over some of what Sean McVay does. And then the other thing I would say from Gerard Mayo's perspective, you'll get credit, man, like you found the guy. And it's so important to sort of develop this young quarterback, whoever the Patriots take at number three. I want the young guy working with him. And I feel like I just, I've seen the Josh McDaniels thing. And if I'm Gerard Mayo, I would want to get somebody that is sort of my guy. And McDaniels, I mean, that's a really powerful guy in terms of he's been a head coach in different destinations, right? Where he may try to do too much and completely take over the offense. And if you're Gerard Mayo, you want that in some sense, but I rather identify my guy like, hey, I'm the one that said Kaylee should be an offensive coordinator. Bill wouldn't do it. I think he's ready now that he's had these years with McVay. So I hope it's Kaylee. And I just want to start anew here. I don't want the McDaniels thing again. Okay, so the Celtics, of course, beat the Heat in Miami. We should mention Miami was on a back-to-back, so that's certainly part of the story here. But how about those Heat culture shirts in the court with all the phrases that they have? I think that's a little bit over the top. But, I mean, hell, you can't really make fun of the Heat because they beat the shit out of the Celtics all the time in the playoffs. So I think it's a little corny, but what are you going to do? The Heat can do what they want. Like, the Heat culture thing is real. All these guys go in there, and they're better with the Heat than they are with other organizations. That's why, like, even though the Celtics completely blew out the Heat, I mentioned the back-to-back. I'm still going to fear the Heat. I still fear that team because I've seen Eric Spolstra go nuts in playoff series, come up with awesome things, and Martin can turn into a guy that looks like a first-team All-NBA player. Gabe Vincent last year for them. I know he's not there anymore. He goes nuts. Hey, Scary Terry could go nuts, but you get the point. They still scare me, even though the Celtics beat them down, even though the Celtics are the more talented team. They definitely have the better top six. I mean, they have the best top six of the NBA. I still am scared of the Miami Heat, despite this game tonight. Now, the other scary thing was Porzingis rolled his ankle. It looked worse than it was, apparently, because Porzingis needed help getting off the court, but then he was back on the bench, which I thought that was kind of weird. Like, you roll the ankle like that. Shouldn't you be back there icing it? I don't know. I'm not like a trainer. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know. I'm like, well, if he's not coming back in the game, why is he out there? Like, why don't Get your uh, leg up there. Ice that thing, okay? Now, Joe Mazzula said they know more tomorrow. Porzingis said that he could have come back in the game. He also said after the game, he'll find out more tomorrow after the plane ride and the swelling, etc. So let's just hope it's not too serious. And I, do, I don't think it is because of the way that Porzingis was talking, but we'll find out. It just kind of scares you because you look at the upcoming schedule. Clippers Saturday, New Orleans on Monday, Pacers on or excuse me, Clippers Saturday, yeah, New Orleans Monday, the Pacers are on Tuesday, then you have the Lakers Thursday. Now, he was going to sit out one leg of the back-to-back, no matter what, but I wouldn't be surprised, like, based on 
spraining your ankle that he misses the Clippers game too. We'll see what that entails for the rest of the week. But the schedule, it's a decent schedule this week coming up for the Celtics. So we'll see how many games he's able to play in. The thing that it reminds me of, though, is every time he goes down, you hold your breath. It really reminds me of Gronk, right? Where Porzingis is this team's version of what Gronk did for the Patriots, where they're really, really good without Porzingis, right? They went to the finals. Gronk, they won a Super Bowl without him, right? But when they're all together and Porzingis is out there, just like when Gronk was out there, they're supercharged and they're almost impossible to beat. Like, you look at Brady's numbers with Gronk, and this is when he, when Gronk started his career. A 103.8 passer rating with Gronk on the field for Brady. Without Gronk, 89.6. Like, it's a significant drop-off. Gronk was just so valuable to what the Patriots did, and then, of course, to what the Bucks did with Gronk as well. It's that easy button, Gronk down the seam, and with Porzingis, it's Porzingis in the pick-and-roll, Porzingis in the post, playing with Porzingis at the elbow. It's just so many different things he does. And so that's the one thing I fear is like every time he goes down, like I love watching Porzingis play, but I just have this thought in the back of my head. No, no, don't let this happen. Don't go down. Don't get hurt. And I have this fear every time. And I just think, okay, even when they get into the postseason and say Porzingis is healthy, you're still going to be holding your breath the whole postseason. Please don't go down. Don't let him get hurt. And that's the one big thing that I think is sort of hovering over the Celtics series or a season rather, he is the he is the guy that completely changes them. Okay? And I would argue that this matchup against the Heat, he's part of the reason, or the Heat are part of the reason, that Heat team is part of the reason you got the guy. Because you were so tired of your offense at times getting stuck in the mud against that Heat team. And they feature him early and often in this game. And you feel like, oh yeah, this is why they have Porzingis. This is why they're beating the Heat this year if they get in a playoff series. But you're always going to have that thought in the back of your mind. So let's just knock on wood. Hope he can stay healthy into the playoffs and all that because they need him. And I will say this, they showed him off early tonight. So you think about how this game started. He posts Highsmith, easy bucket, 10-8. Off the screen, drives into a pull-up at the elbow at 7'2", 22-16. Elbow jumper over Butler, 24 to 18. He then drove another closeout, 29 to 18. Top of the key three, 32 21. Then he altered a Jimmy Butler shot at the rim. Jimmy was trying to hit a layup and he just, he had to change the way he was shooting it because Porzingis was there. How about the fact that on the roll, he finds Al for a three to make it 37 23? Just a really good pass. And the Heat have to bring help over from Al's defender in the corner. So it's an easy read for Porzingis at 7 2. He's got the ball. Above his head, he just throws it to Al in the corner. Easy three for Al Horford because Al's been shooting the shit out of the ball as we went over on the last pod. And then he gets a three from Pritchard to make it 40 to 25. So the first quarter, 14 points, five of seven, two of three is a plus 13. It was kind of like this message they were sending to the Heat. Hey, this is our new toy. This is the new thing. We didn't have this last year. This is what we're going to do if we meet you in the postseason. So he ends up with 17 in the first half, 19 in the game because he left early, relatively early in that third quarter. But man, you were so excited the majority of the night and then that was kind of a buzzkill. And look, the Celtics still ran the heat out of the building and all that, but it's just, it was a reminder of Porzingis being sort of fragile from a physicality standpoint. Not to say that he's not a tough player or that he's soft. It's not that. It's just, it's literally his body betrays him. Like he has a propensity to get injured and it's just unfortunate. All right, Tatum, I felt like, he was really good in this game, and what it felt like to me is, hey, I'm going to get to my spot 
and you can't do anything about it. So he finishes with 26, eight boards, four assists. Early on, backs down Highsmith, gets to the line, makes it 4-2. Drives to the basket, gets more free throws, makes it 6-2. Drives past Terry Rozier for a layup, makes it 15-2. Leak out dunk, fadeaway over Robinson, gets to the line again, gets to the line again. So eight free throws in the first half. This is what I was telling you about. He was relentless driving to the basket. He wasn't settling, and he couldn't. He was what? He didn't hit a three in that first half, but then he gets easier opportunities in the second half, and he's able to knock down a bunch of threes where he hit three in that third quarter. So that was the difference is like he used the drive game and getting to the free throw line to set up his step back stuff, and he shot the ball better in the second half, and I would say a lot of that has to do with the relentlessness of getting to the line. We talked about it the other day. He, over his last 15, 16 games or so, is is in the top 10 of the NBA in free throw shooting, and it's not a coincidence that he's getting... He's been a more efficient scorer when he's getting to the free throw line. It just helps you. So that's the one thing I thought about Tatum is he used his physicality and he got wherever he wanted. He was in get to my spot mode. Derek White was awesome in terms of his floor game. 15 points, 6 of 12 shooting, 6 assists, 6 rebounds, 2 blocks. So one of the things that sticks out to me about Derek White, and I noticed it early, he pushed the ball, he finds Tatum for a layup or Tatum to get free throws. Tatum makes it 6-2. to two. But Derek White gets him on the outlet, and he is just sprinting down the field. And you start to think about how important Derek White is to this team in terms of their pace. When Derek White is off the floor, their pace is slower than the slowest team in the NBA, which is the Bulls. If you look at their transition frequency, right, what percentage of your possessions are coming in transition? This is via cleaning the glass. 15.7% with White on the floor. That's in the 67th percentile. It would rank around ninth in the NBA. So you say, okay, 15.7, 67th percentile, ninth in the NBA. That's not great. But it's 2.9 percentage points better than when he's off the floor. That's in the 96th percentile, that on-off differential. So then you look at, okay, well, that means it's, what, 12.8% when he's off the floor in terms of the transition frequency. Only the the Bulls have less transition possessions than that number with Derek White off the floor. So he's so important to their transition game, and you saw it right away in this game when he's pushing the ball and getting Tatum an easy opportunity at the free throw line. The other thing I would say about Derek White, we saw it at the end of the second quarter, right before halftime. They started doing something, and I give Tatum and I give Brown credit because they have to be willing to do this. Let Derek White and Porzingis at times handle the offense, and run things late in quarters and run things late in games. Because we've seen in the past, Jalen and Jason Tatum, sometimes they don't make the best decisions when it comes to that. And they played through those two guys at the end of the first half. So if you look at what they did, well, first of all, he had a block from behind on a jump shot. I think it was Tyler here. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but he had that block. But anyway, after that, he has, they run a pick and roll with Porzingis and he throws it back to Porzingis Porzingis gets a three to make it 72-61. And this is another thing we point to with Derek White. 1.05 points per possession as a pick-and-roll ball handler. That's in the 87th percentile. And just to give you some context there, the other guys in that area, Harden at 1.05, Luka at 1.05, Jamal Murray at 1.05, Kevin Durant at 1.05. So the way that he's been in terms of an efficiency standpoint, handling... And operating in the pick and roll is the same as Luca, Harden, Murray, and Durant. Like, those are unbelievable players. 
And the reason that's so important is only three half-court offenses are north of 105 in terms of their offensive rating this season. So that's how efficient. Derek White running the pick and roll is basically like having a top three half-court offense in the NBA, and that's something that this team needs to emphasize more, playing through him and Porzingis. I feel like sometimes, like the Nuggets game, they get in trouble with too much of the isolation stuff. Like, the Celtics' numbers in clutch time are really good. They've been good in clutch time. The one issue that they have, and I want to monitor this as we get closer to the postseason, they play at the slowest pace in the NBA in clutch time, and that shouldn't be the case. And when you run this these pick and rolls with Derek White and Porzingis, it won't happen. So I'm not saying like you never play through Tatum and Jalen Brown late. Obviously you do that. They're your two best players, but this is something that gets you really, really efficient offense. Okay, by the way, <laughs> if you look at Drew Holiday in this game, he's like... Quietly goes seven of eight from the field, three of four from deep, and he has five rebounds and five assists. He was awesome. He just he didn't he barely missed a shot. Jalen was seven of eleven, four of eight. He had 18 points. He was good in this game as well. You had Cornette off the bench, 12 points, didn't miss a shot. They were just lobbing him the ball. They were going past their defenders, and Cornette was getting easy opportunities at the basket. One other note on the defensive side, because the defense was not good in the first half. They were better in the second half. But one thing that impressed me, so Jimmy Butler goes for 17, but he was just 7 of 11, or I should say he was 7-11 from the floor. He did hit two threes, but Butler only took one free throw, and he was a minus 24. So getting to the free throw portion of this, in that series last year, Jimmy Butler took 7.7 free throws per game. So he was living at the free throw line. He had games with 14 free throws, 12 free throws, and 10 free throws. This is a big talking point last year if you remember on the pod during that series don't foul Jimmy Butler stay on the floor when he does the pump fake stay on the floor make him hit that shot we saw Derek White he didn't bite in a pump fake a couple of times Jalen didn't bite in a pump fake and that's another thing I want to give Jalen credit for this Jalen wanted him like Jalen keeps getting these premier matchups now I want Luca I want Jimmy Butler I give him a lot of credit I thought he did a reasonable job like Jimmy was pretty efficient from the floor but the big thing was with him is don't let him get to the free throw line because you look at his numbers on the season, 8.1 a game, which is the sixth most in the NBA. So 34% of his points come at the free throw line. He can't really beat you if he doesn't get to the free throw line. And I thought that Jalen and a couple of other guys that got opportunities on him did a pretty good job. Like Butler's a great player, unbelievable player, but he wants to slow the game down. He wants to get to the free throw line. And to the Celtics credit, they didn't foul him. Okay. One other thing I wanted to mention, so Dick Leip, who of course does the stats for the NBC Sports Boston podcast, or NBC Sports Boston broadcast, I should say, not their podcast, maybe he does it for their podcast too, but for the Celtics broadcast, this game was on TNT, of course, but Dick Leip had this tweet. So the Celtics had the highest effective field goal percentage, 775, and the highest true shooting percentage, 805 in the NBA this year. If you look at since 1980, the highest true shooting percentage in a game, Utah last or two years ago at 808 against Sacramento, Celtics the second highest true shooting percentage, which accounts for threes being worth more than twos and accounts for free throws. The Celtics 805. They had the second best true shooting percentage in a game since 1980. And just to give you an idea of how crazy these numbers are, if you look at the best true shooting percentage in the NBA this season, it is 61.5%. The Celtics are at 80.5. If you look at the best effective field goal percentage, 58.2% of the season, the Celtics were at 77.5. So the Celtics were what? 
basically 19 percentage points better in both effective field goal percentage and true shooting percentage than the best teams in the league in those particular categories, which it's OKC and Indiana. So just unbelievable in terms of the efficiency tonight. Unbelievable game. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention. I'm bringing this back after last year we dealt with Reggie Miller for a seven-game series. A couple of uh, Reggie things that he said in this game. So at the end of the first half, Jimmy Butler is going to the free-throw line, the one free-throw he took that we referenced, off a foul from Jalen Brown. He said it was their first free throw of the half. It was their fifth. <laughs> I don't know like how that happens. He's literally at the game watching it. He says this is their first free throw of the half. No, it was their fifth. Unbelievable. But anyway, he mentioned Derek White should be in the All-Star game at least nine, ten times. And I'm like, dude, like, okay, you're certainly playing up to the Boston audience. Like they've put on the Celtics are trying to get him into the All-Star game. But we get it, man. You think he's an All-Star. Like you don't have to tell us every two seconds. He also mentioned that Steph Curry is going to be there, even though he's not a starter. Like, thanks, Reg. None of us thought that Steph Curry would. Thank God we have you here because nobody else would have thought that Steph Curry was getting to the All-Star game. And he said in the third quarter, again, I've been talking about it. The Celtics are on a heater from downtown. No shit, Reggie. Everybody can see that the Celtics are hitting threes like crazy. But you don't have to say, again, I've been talking about it. The Celtics are on a heater. Just use different words. The Celtics are red hot, something along those lines. Or just say, hey, the Celtics have already hit 19 threes. You don't have to say, again, I've been talking about it. I'm going to say the same thing I've been saying all game. They're on a heater. Like, you don't have to keep saying that. So Reg is in postseason form. I give him credit. He's already in postseason form saying obvious things and some things that don't even make sense. Oh, interesting thing from Joe Mazzula after the game. He was wearing a t-shirt that said, Jesus, coffee, and jujitsu. Three important things in life, he said, when he was asked about the t-shirt. <laughs> he is an interesting guy, man. I would agree, like, although I don't know much about jujitsu. I'm not a coffee guy, but I drink energy drinks, like C4s, so it's basically the same thing. But he is definitely an interesting guy, I'll say that. Three important things in life. And we also found out he recently watched A Bronx Tale. They asked, somebody asked him, hey, what movie are you watching this year, Joe? Because I know you love The Town, A Bronx Tale. I agree, Bronx Tale is a great movie. The Town's a great movie. The Town is like the ultimate, you could watch that movie 80 times. Like anytime it's, they play it on TNT a lot. Anytime it's on TNT, I'll watch it. I, I absolutely love that movie. Uh, real quick on the Bruins, they bounce back, of course, after the Carolina loss. Back to back, they come back. Pasta with goal number 31 in the season on a power play. Just another laser from Pasta. Frederick with a wrist shot. Uh, nice pass from Zaka. He now is on... A streak with points in four straight games. He's been awesome lately. Assist against Winnipeg. Assist against Montreal. Two assists again against uh, Carolina, rather, in the loss. And then a goal in this game. And you thought maybe, okay, the Bruins, they went into overtime after the Tarasenko power play goal late in the game. And you're thinking, oh, no, they're going to lose this one in overtime because we've seen them lose a lot of games in overtime this season. Marshawn, the game winner from Coyle. So nice win for the Bruins as well. They bounce back. The Carolina, though, Carolina's not a team you'd like to see in the playoffs. I know Carolina's not had the season some people thought they would have, but they give the Bruins just a ton of trouble. So next up for the Bees, you got a matinee against Philly on Saturday, 1230 in Philadelphia. The Celtics, Clippers on Saturday night. That's going to be fun. So we get some nice stuff over the weekend as well, even though the Patriots season is over. And of course, you get the conference championship games as well. Jamie and I will give you some of our picks. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel on that in just a little bit. Coming up next, though, 
Cooper Flagg, the number one prospect in the 2025 NBA draft. He's from Maine. Chad Finn wrote about him this week. We'll talk to Chad about Cooper Flagg next. When it comes to the NFL playoffs, you've got to win one game at a time. But when you bet the NFL playoffs on FanDuel, one game can mean a lot of wins. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, has all your favorite bets like the money line and the spread, plus all sorts of prop bets. All right, and I'm looking at this Niners-Lions NFC Championship game. How about that? The Lions are in the NFC Championship. I cannot believe it, but I'm going with the Niners in this game. So how about an alternate spread with the Niners of... Minus two and a half. So the Niners, they just have to win by a field goal. And then Christian McCaffrey over 35 and a half receiving yards. Last week, he was under this number, but he was targeted 12 times. So you figure Purdy and McCaffrey connect a little bit more in this game. Plus, Rashad White went over this number last week for Tampa Bay against that Lions defense. And McCaffrey's a better receiver than White. And then secondarily, Debo Samuel, of course, banged up. So you can get that. For plus 152, McCaffrey over 35 and a half receiving yards, and the Niners to cover two and a half. And right now, every day there's an NFL playoff game, FanDuel is giving all customers a no-sweat same-game parlay. That means when you combine all your bets for a chance at a bigger payday, you'll get bonus bets back if your SJP doesn't win. Just visit FanDuel.com Pike if you don't already have an account. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 plus in presidents like states. Minimum three leg same game parlay required. Refund issued as non withdrawable bonus bets, which expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Globe, it is Chad Finn, has an article for Globe Magazine right now. The NBA's hottest prospect is a 17 year old from Maine, Meet Cooper Flag. I. I'm so excited that this is happening. We have a star player from Maine that is eventually going to be the number one pick in the draft. It's crazy, Chad. How are you? First of all, congrats on the story. How are you doing? Good. I'm a old guy from Maine, so it fell right into my wheelhouse. His, uh, his mom went to University of Maine, as did I, and we had some mutual friends. So it's probably the easiest reporting I'll ever do. But uh, it, was, it was really fun to kind of find out what he's all about, sort of, sort of the origin story, because... Uh, man, this, this kid's legit. It's almost hard to believe it because of where he's from and that he was playing Maine high school basketball two years ago, but uh, everything they say about him is true. Well, that's why I wanted to have you on because this he's starting to... He, now, in the basketball world, he blew up really last summer. Everybody knows who he is in the basketball world, but I feel like even here locally, it hasn't been really a huge story yet. And it feels like we're on the verge of this happening because... He's committed to Duke, so he's going to play at Duke next year, which, by the way, I think that's a really smart move because we see all these guys that they're going to the G League Ignite, and they just become irrelevant. Like, nobody saw Scoot Henderson play last year until he played Wemby, and quite frankly, he's not having a rookie season. Same Great rookie season, I should say. Same thing with Jonathan Kaminga. He went there. He was a big-time recruit. He sort of becomes irrelevant. So I like the fact, because I remember when Zion was coming out, and Zion, of course— had the huge social media following when he went to duke duke became must see tv and i know for like college basketball fans duke's must see tv but i don't watch a ton of duke games right now but next year i'm gonna watch all these games because cooper flag he's gonna get the Wemby treatment where everybody in basketball is gonna be talking about him 
And I think like Duke is going to help bring back college basketball regular season ratings because everybody's going to want to tune in to see him play. Like I remember the game where Zion busted his, busted his shoe up. Yeah. Remember that yeah. that whole situation? But I really think we're on the verge of this guy from Maine becoming a mega, mega superstar, not just as, as a great basketball player, but he's going to be like in two years, one of the most popular athletes in the country, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, and for the reasons you stated, it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, my story was sort of about his origin because I'm writing about a main kid for the Boston market and it's in the magazine. So it's not entirely geared towards sports people. So you take a little bit of a different tone of that. So I had some Celtics connections in there. I quoted Tatum and talked about his mom's obsession with the 86 Celtics and having him watch videotapes of them when, when he was a kid and his brother was a kid. Uh, but uh, one of the things that didn't make the cut was talking about him being the next Duke villain. And uh, he's totally embracing that. He's not in that J.J. Reddick, Christian Leitner mode where, uh, you know, he's kind of a finesse player. Um, he, if you hear somebody compare him to Larry Bird, they haven't seen him because his game is way more Kevin Garnett. It sounds crazy to say that he's not as tall as KG, but everything else is, is very similar. He's um, he does have the mid range game, but his intensity, the shot blocking, defensive rebounding, motor never stops. Talks a lot of trash. Uh, players on uh, uh, the opposing team wouldn't say what he said to them on the court because it was pretty uh, pretty vicious, I guess. But um, he's going to be the guy in college basketball when he gets there. And uh, I think people are going to love watching him play because he's a somebody who's not firing up 25 shots a game. He's out there doing every single thing he can to help his team win. And that's passing, rebounding, uh, defense first. And it, I, I think even Ducators are going to have a hard time not at least admiring how this kid plays basketball. And I think he's not going to be a villain because remember, Zion wasn't either. Zion was one of the rare Duke players that wasn't really a villain. Point. I I don't think because of the stardom and because now he's become a sensation on social media, I don't think he's going to be a villain. I think people are going to want to see him succeed because this is a guy that ultimately is going to be the number one pick in the draft. And he's a mega star. I just don't I don't think he's going to be that villain that we ordinarily see with the Leitners, the as you mentioned, J.J. Redick may be number one on that list. Everybody hated J.J. Uh, actually, you know who's an underrated villain is Grayson Allen because yeah. Grayson Allen he was there for four years and obviously had a lot of controversial things when he was there but the other thing that sticks out to me you mentioned the Kevin Garnett comparison and I watched him two weeks ago and what was that that classic that he was playing in I didn't even Football know the game. Springfield yes okay yeah. so I watched that and the thing that stuck out to me was the competitiveness he's yeah. just like going at guys he's ripping down every rebound and then I was watching some highlights of him there's the seven foot two dude, I forget his name, but he blocked him in a game and he just goes right back at him, blocks him and starts talking all this crap. So I think that's another thing that people are going to like. It's he's this guy that just wants to go at you. He's just got this mentality. That's the thing that stuck out to me more so than anything else. But you mentioned the Celtics thing, the 85, 86 Celtics. And I don't want to yeah. give away too much of your story, Chad. But so his mother would make him and his brother watch, <laughs> high, watch the DVD of the 85, 86 Celtics when they're going to practice. Yes, when they were uh, Cooper showed Cooper has a twin brother Ace, who's a Division One prospect, but he's not of the magnitude Cooper is. He's 
He's got offers from, uh, I think, St. Joe's and a couple other, you know, kind of mid-level schools. University of Maine dreams of having him, but he's probably too good for that level. Um, but Cooper took to basketball first. And by the time he was in third grade, he was playing against sixth graders in rec league and dominating uh, up in Newport, Maine, where they're from. And so his mom start, mom's really savvy. She's really smart. I couldn't be more impressed with like uh, how they handle this, um, where Cooper is accessible, but he's not overwhelmed. And uh, they, they really manage the attention well. And this goes back to even when they started kind of noticing that he had special ability as a basketball player. And when he was in third grade, they lived up in Newport, Maine, um, with generations of their family are from, and they would drive down a couple of nights a week to play AAU ball in Portland uh, with, you know, higher level of player um, just to push him and see what his ultimate level was. And on those trips in their van, she would pop in 85, 86 Celtics highlight reels. And she actually had a picture on her, um, Instagram page of Cooper for that that Christmas getting the 86 Celtics highlight package and kind of laying on the floor in their living room and watching it after he unwrapped it. We didn't use it with a story, but um, it goes back, uh, just goes back a long time. Uh, and she, she really wanted to teach him how to play the game the right way. And I think you're from around here. You have, uh, you have no other reference than that about how, how basketball should be played than the 85 86 burn Celtics. Yeah, my only critique with him would be he said it was boring, but in fairness, he was only in second grade, right? But yeah, anybody like that, nine. I mean, come yeah, on, mom. <laughs> anybody that thought that team was boring, you got to be crazy. So I wanted to get to this Tatum quote from your story where Tatum said, because he went to a bunch of guys' camps and there was that moment you mentioned in your story where LeBron goes up to him and that becomes a whole story. But Tatum said that he's probably ahead of me at this age. I wasn't nearly as athletic when I got into college. It took me a little bit longer. I just like how he has an edge about him, a toughness. He was going at guys and trying to go at the best players and trying to block shots. I just love how he competed. So he's already sort of getting the stamp from NBA players across the league. And obviously the best NBA player that plays for the Celtics has given him a compliment. And there was also this story from Scal. Can you tell that story about Scal when essentially Cooper Flagg goes to a pickup game and people were just amazed? Oh, yeah. Well, the Tatum thing, I mean, Tatum kind of went out of his way to talk to me about it, which I really appreciated. I mean, what, what we're talking about a five, top five, six NBA player here and um, willing to talk about, I know there's a Duke connection and all that, but willing to talk about a high school kid, I think that's pretty unusual. So I um, appreciate that. And he, I, I ran a quote by Tatum uh, that, uh, that one of the opposing coaches when Cooper played in the recent tournament up here in Maine said about him, which he he said, Cooper's the best white American player since Larry Bird. And Tatum kind of scoffed at that a little bit because, you know, there's a long way to go, but he didn't write it off either. Uh, he just made sure to point out that he's not Larry Bird in terms of his skill set, which is true. He's a different player. But for Tatum, just to be so willing to talk about this kid beyond the Duke connection, I was pretty impressed with. But um, Scal, I mean, you know, Scal is he kind of took credit for discovering him a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and in a, I'm not in a surprised. Way, he was involved. Uh, yeah. He, he invited him down to like, you know, he runs these AAU programs and he has this real high level pickup game. I don't know if he's still doing it, but he did it for a couple of years. Um, you'd have local kids who, you know, going D1 or, or playing local colleges and basically invite only come play in it. 
and uh, he invited Cooper down. Um, he had a connection to Cooper's trainer up there. Scal had done some like camps and stuff and they knew each other and the, the trainer recommended him. He had him down and Cooper comes in the gym and Scal's been talking him up in, in that Scal way. <laughs> and, uh, Cooper comes in like Scal explains in the story, but like first play, he winds the ball up, takes a drop step, elevates above the rim, which is one of the things about him. It looks like his torso is above the rim when he dunks and just throws it down. And the whole gym went quiet. All these accomplished players, uh, you know, Scal, 11-year NBA guy, and it's just dead silent because of uh, what this 14-year-old kid at the time came down from freaking Maine to do. Um, and so Scal was all in on him right there. And, you know, Cooper, Cooper at that point was a high school freshman in Nokomis Regional High School in Maine and won the state championship. But the magnitude of what he was going to be as a player wasn't quite clear yet beyond he's division one. He might be really high division one, but he could have it could not have anticipated this right. Now. And Scal saw him called USA basketball, called Duke and uh, I'm not sure the entire degree of it, but at some level, Scal's reaching out helped push Cooper forward with USA basketball and with the, the high level schools recruiting him. Yeah. I, the reason I say I'm not surprised is we hear Scal on the broadcast where it's like, I've been in on Anthony Edwards for a couple of years. I'm like, well, so has everybody else. He was the number one <laughs> pick. He always said that I've been, he says, I've been in on the magic for a while. It's like, well, how long have you been in on the magic? Because they didn't get good till this year. So I just like, sometimes some of what he says is hyperbolic, but that's pretty cool that Scal reached out to Cooper all those people. Cooper gets a lot of mention on the broadcast. He seems like he mentions yeah every three games, especially when he was back here. He was in Maine for the two games at the beginning of January and then the Hoopal Classic here, which, you know, everybody anticipated. I mean, Brad Stevens went out to watch that. I actually got a text this morning from somebody with the Celtics who uh, said uh, Cooper's an absolute animal and just made it sound like the Celtics would dream of getting this guy, not that it's ever possible, but that they would be completely sold on him if he was somebody they had a chance to draft. Well, can we bring Brad back the regional draft? Isn't that how it used to go? Like, remember, who was it? That <laughs> so the they Celtics got Tommy, right? <laughs> yeah. Can we bring back the regional draft? That way they can get Cooper flag because there's no way they're going to be drafting number one overall next year. I mean, I hope he doesn't end up. I want to see him in an interesting market because you think about the team, the San Antonio. I guess that would be interesting because not Wemby the Wizards. Be, Just oh, not that, the Wizards. No, the Wiz or Detroit. Detroit would be bad, too. So I yeah. hope it's. I mean, I guess we'll see who else is like really bad next year. Somebody else tanking. But I think about like the the jump that you said he made because he was going to be a division one player, as you said, when Scal originally saw him. But when did he sort of morph into getting to that number one prospect territory? Was it the Pete Sham a couple of years ago where he had a great run? He's leading like Maine United in into title games somehow. Maine United. <laughs> We're thinking about all these great AAU programs, right? And Maine United makes it to the finals. Yeah, it's the same starting five he's been playing with since fourth grade. Uh, that didn't make the story. Wow. But it's the same core kids. They've added like one here or there over the years, but the starting fives remain the same. Um, it's basically been the month after he won the high school championship in East, March 2022 when he was a freshman, started the year at 14, ended at age 15, won the state title with his brother and his older brother, who's a senior, and then it like the month after that, he got the invite to U.S. Bas USA Basketball. Uh, Maine United got promoted up to a higher level AAU league. And um, I think it was the Nike EYBL uh, was a step up from the Maid Hoops League. 
but then uh, uh, the USA basketball invited him. He was two years younger than almost every player there. There were only eight players in his class. Everybody else was a year ahead of him. Uh, and by the end of that summer, he was the USA male athlete of the year, men's basketball athlete of the year. He led them to the gold medal in Spain, leapfrogged all these guys that were ahead of him. And then he's just accelerated, ascended since then. Like last summer, they played in the PGM two years ago, didn't make a run, um, had a good sophomore year at Montverdon. But then this past summer, uh, he took that main United team to the final at Peach Jam. And, you know, they, they made this incredible run, I think, after going nine and nine before pool play. So it wasn't anticipated, but he just put everybody on his back. And you look at his stats, it'd be like 28 points, 19 rebounds, eight blocks, five assists. And, if, you know, they lost to uh, Carlos Boozer's kids, I think, in the finals. But it was just a completely unanticipated run. And by the time that was over, um, he had elevated to the number one prospect. He reclassified to 2024 to graduate high school a year early so he could get to Duke a year early so he could get to the NBA a year earlier. Um, but this summer at Peach Jam, he became the number one guy clear cut. The summer before that is when he just made this astronomical leap to uh, elite national prospect. Yeah, I can't wait to see him at Duke next year. And I'm already all in on the highlights. And I want to watch like more actual full game action to see how unbelievable this guy is. But I was wondering this, you think about the recent guys from this area that have played in the NBA, not going back to the 90s or the 80s. You think about rec like fairly recently, you have Bruce Brown, who won a championship with the Nuggets last year. Pat Connaughton a couple of years ago won with Milwaukee, won a state championship at St. John's Prep. Nerlens, who oh, yeah. he, he's from Everett, but obviously did not have the career that people thought. Michael Carter-Williams, who was the rookie of the year and... Syracuse alum, or not really, he's not a Syracuse alum. I'm a Syracuse alum. He was only there for two years. And then you have it like. It doesn't count? Yeah. He's not, is he an alum? He didn't graduate. I mean, he's. Does Carmelo count? Carmelo graduate after? I, no, I don't, I don't think he did, but I mean. You win a that, title, you count. Okay. Yeah. He, I, yeah. And if you donate the full basketball facility, you count. <laughs> and like they need, they need Carmelo's kid to save that program at this point. Shabazz Napier, that's another mass guy, but th like this is nowhere close. Like, Cooper Flagg's unequivocally going to be the number one pick in the draft. And I wonder, like, Pat Conson and Bruce Brown, I'm sure they have a lot of family and friends, right? Like, they go to these games when they play the Celtics. But I wonder, do you think, obviously, I would assume it happens in the state of Maine. I don't know about the rest of New England, but people become, like, fans of, like, Cooper Flagg becomes must-see TV for people here locally, where more people are buying the NBA League Pass in this region yeah. than ever before just to see Cooper Flagg play. Do you think there'll be that kind of fanfare locally here unless you have to play with jordan Poole and kyle kuzma in washington then nobody's buying <laughs> anything but um yeah i do I, I think it will be a regional thing because beyond the fact that he's from here and you know massachusetts can claim a main kid as their own for sure um right. the style of play people are really gonna like um just that that he hustles all the time that he blocks shots that he's this defensive menace uh, motor never stops. He's he's a very easy player to like unless your team is playing against him. Um, and then you you know you just wish he would go take a break on the bench for a while. But uh, he's um, he's going to be somebody who's a very popular player, even in fan bases where he's not playing for their team. And uh, I, I, that's especially going to be so in New England. But Celtics fans are going to be 
concocting ways to get this guy for years <laughs> while he's in the league until right. until you know it happens when he's like 29 years old or something. Yeah, no, that's true. Like we're waiting for his real first free agency, right? His second max contract. Can they find a way to get Cooper Flag to the Celtics? Yeah, you're right. That's going to happen sooner rather than later, especially if he goes to one of these dumpster fire organizations where we come up with Hey, could Cooper Flag be the first guy that doesn't take the max contract? Like, remember Porzingis did that, where Porzingis ended up actually asking the Knicks for a trade. Now there was issues both sides, but Porzingis ends up going from New York to Dallas relatively early on. It's very rare you see somebody pass on that first max because it's just so much money. I wonder if we can here be bringing out the trade machine early to see if we can get Cooper Flag to the Celtics. So definitely. It, what was he like that personality wise? Was he intense the whole time you were talking to him or was he like easy going when he's like off the court? Yeah, he's really easy going off the court, um, you know, soft spoken, doesn't say much. You know, he's well coached, I think, from his his coach, Kevin Boyle at Montford, who's coached. He coached Kyrie Irving in high school, which must have been an experience. And that guy's insane. Had, Kyrie, yeah. obviously, but Kevin Boyle. There was yeah. a documentary that he had on HBO Sports. It was just a while ago because Kid Gilchrist was on the team. Yeah. That guy is nuts. He used to coach St. Pat's in New Jersey, and then he went to Mount Verde. He's right, insane. Right. Yeah. He's a blast to talk to because he's, he's a straight shooter. And you, you watch him, you think, um, why is this guy coaching a high division one program? But then he's got a pretty good deal there when you look at Cade Cunningham, Scotty Barnes. You know, he didn't bead for a little while. He didn't stay there. He had Ben Simmons. Um, you know, now he's got Cooper, and uh, Cooper's got a ton of great teammates, too. His kid, Asa Newell, thinks going to Maryland. Uh, I didn't see him miss a shot. Um, this kid, Liam McNeely, I mentioned the story's going to Indiana. He's going to be a great player at Indiana. This, he's He's got a parade of talent coming in there, so I can see why he stays there. But, um, yeah, he, you know, he he's very – Boyle is very straightforward about what Cooper needs to do. And at one point, he Cooper was sitting next to him while he was saying – you know, he needs to hone his outside shot. He didn't really take them in high school unless the game was out of hand. And now he's a he's a good shooter. He's getting better. Um, and Boyle will be very specific about the things that Flag needs to improve on. And Cooper just sits next to him and shakes his head, you know, in agreement. You know, he knows what he needs to do to get better. And um, the progress he's made just from being a class A high school player at a small town in Maine to um, kind of being the the face of high school basketball on his way to be in the face of college basketball next year. It's pretty remarkable. And he's got a lot of, seems like he's got a lot of great guidance and leadership along the way from his family to, um, you know, Kevin Boyle now, even though he's kind of a nut. Yeah. And it's the one thing about him too, is even if he's not a great shooter now, it's not as if he has a broken shot, right? He's only 17 years old where based on what you know about his work ethic, it's yeah. probably in the four years from now, he's going to be an elite shooter just because he has the work ethic to be able to do that. All right, Chad. So a couple of other things before we let you go here. What do you make of the whole and we're recording before the game tonight? So maybe something happened after the game tonight. But what do you make of the whole Joe Missoula, Gary Washburn dynamic this year? It may be more entertaining than some of the games. I mean, we got Joe just saying the other week when he's asked about Jason Tatum missing a the layup in what was that game? Was it the yeah? It was the Nuggets game where yeah. he pushed the, it on the, the fast break. Yeah, yeah. Joe randomly, Missoula randomly brings up Gary Washburn. Washburn didn't answer the question. He said Gary's going to be mad. We took too many layups. Joe had that thing earlier this season when he brought up the article from a couple of years ago about taking too many threes, and then 
Gary asked him one game about too, taking too many threes. It became a whole conversation. But I'm telling you, man, this is a really, really interesting dynamic in these press conferences. Yeah, if the Celtics have a terrible three-point shooting night or a great three-point shooting night, you can pretty much bet now Joe's going to bring it up in the press conference and reference Gary. Um, I I got to find out the backstory on how Joe got that article uh, previously from 2016 about Gary talking about three-point shooting because he must have just ordered someone in PR to find me something, you know, go, go dig into the Globe archives. It'd be insane if he actually did that himself. Like if he actually spent time out of his day trying to figure out what Gary had written in the past. But um, I, do, I haven't talked to Gary about it, but I don't think it really bugs him. It seems like they kind of both get a good laugh out of it. And, and uh, I think they have a pretty good relationship generally. But it is weird that Joe keeps bringing it up under, um, you know, under kind of odd circumstances, you know, when they either have a tough loss or a big win. I could see it being one of those things where... Remember when the Red Sox won the World Series in 18 and David Price goes up to the he's at the podium before even the media is there, like the team celebrating and he goes up to the podium and he's just like, where's everybody at? Because he wanted to go after his critics. I could see Missoula if the Celtics win the trophy. Knock on wood. I was one of the few people sitting there when he did that. Oh, you were? (laughs) Yeah. I'm just like, how is this on your mind right now, man? You just won the World Series and all you can think about is going back at the media, which I'm not getting into a whole David Price thing, but there was a ton of stuff that you were fairly criticized for, like the allergy situation, the whole thing with Dennis Eckersley. But the point being yeah. is like he was so fixated on talking to the media. I could see Joe Mazzulla, if they win the championship after, be like, Gary, what did you think about our three-point percentage in the playoff <laughs> runs? <laughs> like, I could see that happening. I hope uh, we get other- to find out. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I certainly, that would be awesome. So now they did get a little bit stiffer competition from a coaching perspective now that Doc goes to the Milwaukee Bucks. But so now is the idea that the finals are just going to be Mike Breen and Doris Burke? Is it just going to be a two-person tandem? Yeah, that's everything I've heard. I did a little poking around on it yesterday after uh, Woj and Shams finally confirmed that Doc took the job. But uh, After CNN. Yes, CNN reporting. Uh, By the way, did we ever find out, like, was there a person behind that? Because it just said CNN Sports. Like, we never got, like, a person with that account. Yeah, never posted a story or anything. Um, AJ Perez at Front Office Sports had a good piece on kind of how that all came to be. Basically, it was all all execs behind the scenes passing it on from one person to another until it ended up in Adam Lefko's ear on on the broadcast. But... um, just it really does sound like they had it confirmed, and I think there's also an agent connection with Doc to somebody at NBA TV. Oh, um, oh Ernie Johnson, but uh, um, yeah, it sounds like it was just you know nobody actually reporting it, other than people in the you know people in the executive suites in the background knowing what was going on. And uh, I don't know if they were, I don't know if they were supposed to report it that if they were kind of supposed to blurt it out like they did the doc has taken that job but uh yeah i've never never really seen a weirder situation than that other than when like uh when uh who was it the blazers took deandre jordan hostage or not the clippers deandre jordan oh the Ma- he was gonna Crazy. go to the mavericks yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, it's the weirdest thing since that yeah that that was bizarre so i just wonder why they wouldn't try to put a third person in there like they have 
I think JJ Reddick's really good when he does games as an analyst. A lot of times he's working in a three-man booth, like they have Richard Jefferson, but it's just just they they think that maybe Reddick's too new to do this. I feel like one of their underutilized guys, by the way, not that he calls games anymore, is Legler. Like, I don't know why Tim Legler is not on more stuff. Like, they have this whole NBA show on every day at 3 o'clock. It's basically the Perk show at this particular point in time. Yeah, Andrews right. is the host, but I don't know why they don't use Legler more. Uh, I think Richard Jefferson is good when he calls games. He calls Nets games, too. He, him and JJ have a good back and forth. But, I mean, I, I guess it's tough to do because you, are, you named your team as... Doris Burke, Doc Rivers, and Mike Breen. So it's tough to put somebody else into the mix. But I don't know if Richard Jefferson or J.J. Reddick, somebody else would be in the mix for the situation. But I don't know. Just having somebody call the first finals after. And didn't they move on from Van Gundy partially because yep. Van Gundy, they were afraid he was going to take a coaching job? Yeah. I mean, as <laughs> your I, boss. I know he's critical too, but it, but Doc was basically there for three months. Yeah. As your boss knows, uh, I think we've had this discussion before, but, um, you know, the league was pissed off at Van de Gundy for the, the constant accurate jabs at officials. Um, but ESPN's rationale also was they thought Van Gundy might take a coaching job that, I don't know, maybe he had expressed interest or his name was popping up somewhere, which is, I guess that's irony, right? That they get rid of a guy for that reason, bring in Doc, and he lasts barely past the half season before he takes another job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were, they're not happy. Uh, you know, they were pretty pissed that this worked out that way. And green had that great line on the broadcast. I think it was last night, just, uh, thanking doc for his service while he was standing there with Doris, just the two of them. Um, she was almost but, yeah. crying, Chad. Did you see that? She was almost crying. She said, I'm going to try not to tear up. Huh. She was legitimately huh. holding back tears. I'm like, how long have you been working with? And they don't even call many games together right now. Like most of the time, Doc calls an LA game and she calls an East Coast game. Yeah, who's she usually with in the past? Mark Jones? Is that yeah, Mark Jones a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's unusual because she hasn't really even been with Green that long. But uh, yeah, it's I, I I think they probably go too. That's what they're indicating now. Um, I think all of us would be in agreement that anyone but Perk, uh, if they're going to add a third voice. Uh, oh. Reddick probably is the best. So I thought Reddick came across as kind of condescending on the draft coverage. Um, I don't know if they would feel totally comfortable with him, uh, totally comfortable with him being the third voice and, and kind of domineering like he did on the draft coverage. But um, maybe he's been coached up a little bit more since then. He's certainly great on the podcast. Yeah, he is intense. Yeah, Perk, what did you make of that comment he had? What was it like a week ago now? It was after the Nuggets game. He said that bird brain. Yeah. If you put if you take out Missoula's brain and put it in a bird, the bird will fly backwards. By the way, this is the same thing he said about Kyrie Irving like a couple of years ago. This is when they were trying to determine whether or not they were going to play in the bubble or not. And that's the comedy made about Kyrie at that point in time. And he used that same analogy with Joe Missoula. I We talked about it on the pod, Chad. I thought that was a little too much like. Like, he's basically calling Missoula an idiot. And it, you can criticize Missoula for certain things, but I thought that was just taking it way too far. Yeah, Joe's pretty far from an idiot, whatever you think of him as a coach yeah. or whether he was ready for the job last year. And I, I think he has made, I mean, some tactical stuff still frustrates you, right? You, you wish they would just get away from Tatum on the ISOs at the end of quarters. And, you know, maybe he doesn't feel empowered or comfortable enough still to put an end to that. But, 
a lot has improved. Part of that's that the coaching staff has gotten much better, Cassell and Charles Lee, but I think Joe's made significant strides too. Um, and he's way better in the press conferences. Just I, I think it really benefits him to explain things, to say uh, for 30 to 45 seconds why he did this, why he did that. And he's been doing that, whereas last year he was really short with everybody uh, and almost defensive. Uh, when Joe expounds on things, you usually end up thinking at the end, okay, that makes sense. You may not agree with it, but it makes sense. And I, I give him a lot of credit for the step forward he's taken this year. I still am not sure he's ready for Eric Spolstra in a playoff series. He's probably ready for Doc. He might be ready for Nick Nurse. I don't know if he's ready for Spolstra, but he has gotten better. And uh, I, I think it's really all you could ask this year. And that was a cheap shot from Perk. I don't know why he did it. Yeah, I think he was looking for a reaction, but everybody else that was on the set with him was kind of like, whoa, what did you just say? So yeah, I thought that was completely over the top by Perk. The other thing I'd give Missoula credit for in terms of how he's dealt with the media is I believe it was on JJ's podcast. I've talked about it before is he said last year he felt at times he took things too personally, the criticism, and he realized they're criticizing the Celtics head coach. They're not just criticizing me. It's because I'm the Celtics head coach. So he looks yeah. at it differently now. So I, and look, it's a tough situation. I mean, you're taking over, you, you're not even supposed to be one of the main assistants. Now you're taking over somebody else's coaching staff you're the head coach. Now he's much more comfortable. He's got his guys around him, right? So it's like that was just a bizarre situation for anybody to be put in last year. So I think he's been much better in terms of really, quite frankly, everything he's been doing this year. All right, that is Chad Finn from The Globe. Make sure to check out his new article. The NBA's hottest prospect is a 17-year-old from Maine, Meet Cooper Flag. Chad, thank you so much for the time. And as always, we really appreciate it. You bet, man. Always great talking to you. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Chad Finn. Always enjoy chatting with Chad. And this is so cool that there's going to be a guy from Maine that's going to be the number one pick in the draft in 2025. Pretty cool. I know some people may be upset that he's going to Duke, but I cannot wait to see him play more at the or finally play at the collegiate level and then going into the NBA. This is really cool. So great story there from Chad. Always enjoy Talking with him. All right, so we bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan as we get get ready to give you our FanDuel picks of the week. Jamie, what's up, man? I'm great, Brian. Looking forward to one of my favorite weekends of the year, conference championships. The best teams going at it, so it should be fun. Yeah, we get the Lions. We get a lot of celebrities, man. You have Eminem, of course, (laughs) representing Detroit. And then you have uh, Taylor Swift, of course. With the Chiefs, so you get a lot of celebrities at these games this weekend, and I'm sure there's going to be even more. Barry Sanders, I'm sure, will be at this game. Jerry Rice, he's always at the Niners games. He always wears like that big chain, the 49ers chain. You seen that? I haven't seen that, actually, but that's fitting to have a nice big gold chain for the Niners. Yeah, I'm guessing Montana's going to be at the game, I would think. Steve yeah. Young was at the game last week, so you'll have the NFL royalty, and then you'll mix it in with a couple of celebrities as well. All right. So, oh, before we get to our picks, Jamie, I thought mm. it was appropriate to bring this up now. Have you seen the Kayshawn Booty story? No. This is crazy. So Kayshawn Booty, he was arrested for oh. sports gambling violations. During the he, season? He just It just happened on Thursday. So he faces one felony count of computer fraud and one misdemeanor count of gaming for prohibited persons under 21. So this was happening when he was playing at LSU. And he used an alias to get around the age requirement. So he faked his age 
so he could gamble. Now, he placed $8,900 in wagers, which I think he was before NIL, too, so he's getting this money somehow, (laughs) right? Including six of those bets were on LSU. Okay, 17 Mm. on college football, six on LSU. Okay, now here's the interesting component to this. There has been some reporting there locally that he didn't bet against his team. So he wasn't point shaving, allegedly, but he still bet six six times on his team. So remember, he had a lot of issues at the collegiate level in terms of concerns with him coming out. He did at one point, he said he still has the SEC record for most receiving yards in a game at 308, which is still amazing to think about all the great receivers, even in recent years that have come through the SEC, that Kayshawn Booty, who went in the sixth round, has the most ever in a game. But not good news for the Patriots. And you know what kind of, and I'm not trying to make light of this situation because he was betting a lot of money for a college kid. Now for him, that would not be a lot of money. But the point is, it's illegal at the time because he's under the age of 21. But the thing that's amazing to me about this whole story is just the fact that we knew that there were red flags with Keishon Booty, uh, and I'm not saying this is another red flag, but this situation coming out for him, it's got to suck from this perspective. Dude was already playing in the NFL. He's now over the legal limit to gamble, right. and now he's getting caught for something he did a couple of years ago, right? Like, you probably thought, if you're Keishon Booty, you probably thought nothing of this. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, holy crap, like I'm about to get arrested. So unfortunate news for, well, I shouldn't say unfortunate news. Unfortunate that he made this mistake. And now, unfortunately, he's paying the price. Yeah, I, I wonder how, I mean, usually these investigations take a long time. So I wonder if he or the Patriots knew about this when they got drafted, because you got to think they've been looking into this for, you know, over a year kind of thing. Um I don't know. It's it's not Massachusetts who obviously love the Patriots, but if Jack Jones can get away with bringing a gun through the airport, you think this will probably get fi- fixed. Like to me, like I can't believe that's even a felony. Frankly, like betting, it's like buying a pack of cigarettes when you're 16. Like I don't know. Maybe I'm making light of it. To me, that's not the biggest deal. Well, in the world, yeah, right? and w- I, I I don't mean to make light of it either. But the one question I have is. How many games did he cover that they bet on? <laughs> he bet on his own team six times. I hope they covered every time because yeah, he would look LSU. like I like I want the receipts of those games. He would look like a complete <laughs> idiot if they imagine if he went like one in five, like they yeah, lost the games. Because I do wonder what games was he betting on, right? Like I, I'm really interested in that portion of the story now because <laughs> if it, if it's against one of these teams that like absolutely stinks, like they always play them or Alabama always plays like Bethune Cookman. Right. So <laughs> what if they is. like what if that's like a 40, 40 point spread or like, you know, a 31 point spread? Like if you're Keishon Booty, you got to think, man, like that that's a lot of points. The backups are going to get in. <laughs> are you sure you want to lay that many points? Like or did he do it in a game that they played a decent opponent? That they felt like, oh, we just got their number. Like, hey, we had a great week of practice. We're playing Mississippi State. We're going to beat the shit out of them. So you know what? I'm betting nine hundred dollars on us to cover the number. And what if he thought that and then they lost to a team, right? Where he's like, hey, great week of practice. We're playing Alabama. We're 10 and a half point dogs. We're covering. And then they yep. lose by three touchdowns. Like I want, I, that's what I want to know. This is, to me, my biggest thing about this is I want to know how he did in the games that he bet on LSU. That needs to be number one top priority for me. That's what I want to find out. And Brian, this is going to be my homework this week. I'm going to make some calls to the Louisiana State Police. We'll get yeah. to the bottom of it. See if you can get any information. <laughs> All right. 
Let's get to our bets, Jamie. So I'm going to go with my first bet is my TD parlay. We mm-hmm. missed by one leg last week, unfortunately. So okay. I have narrowed this down to three legs this week since we only have two games. So this is for plus 660. Isaiah Pacheco, Jameer Gibbs, and Christian McCaffrey. Gibbs has a touchdown in each of their two postseason games and seven in his last seven games. Pacheco, we continue to stay on him because he delivers every week. Touchdowns in each of the last two postseason games, seven touchdowns in his last six games. McCaffrey, as I said last week on the pod, not worth mentioning because he scores a million touchdowns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I like this plus 660. It's all running backs. I'm down. I think the Pacheco, too. I think that's that, that sounds like a really good bet. That seems almost like a lock. Uh, you swapped I out love the... that guy. I hate I love that guy. I hate that he plays on <laughs> the Chiefs because I, yeah. I hate the Chiefs. He runs so hard. He runs, he hard. runs like he's angry, man. I love yeah. that guy. No, I, I like him, too. Um, but you swapped out the, the Lions running backs, which I get. You know, Montgomery Burns. Well, he last screwed week. us. He, he screwed, screwed you, us like, last week. It's like, Brian, when you're at the roulette table, though, it's like you bet on red. It doesn't hit red. I'm always like, oh, I, I got to bet red again. So if I switch to black and then it's red, I'm going to feel like an idiot. But half well, the time you stay on red and then it's black again. So I, I hear yeah. you. You could be right. Well, and you know what the problem with that was? They should have. He should have scored, but they took him out for <laughs> Reynolds. At first, I'm like, Reynolds, what are they bringing in? I'm like, they're bringing in the receiver to run this in. And I'm like, oh, that's their third string running back. I'm like, why would you do that? (laughs) You're only trying to upset people that gamble. Because some people have Gibbs for any time touchdown scores. Some people have Montgomery. Nobody had that Reynolds guy. Okay, they may have had Josh Reynolds, the receiver, who actually scored too. Nobody had their third string running back. So I blame Dan (laughs) Campbell. I stand by my read. I am mad at Dan Campbell. I hear you. It was also, I think that was like a fourth down play. Like they had this season yeah. on the line. They put their third string running back. I mean, it worked out. Well, so they run on first down and then they pass on second and third down and then they bring him in to run it in on fourth. I'm like, just bring Montgomery in. Come on. Yeah. We got a TD parlay here. Um, For my bet. Uh, I, I rode the Ravens last week. I thought I was on one. I, I missed my parlay. I hit two of the three legs when I had the Ravens. I thought Lamar was going to go off. He went over for his touchdowns, but missed his total yards by like 30 yards, which was a shame. But I'm sticking with it. This is for plus 208, Brian. This is the Ravens to beat the Chiefs after what we talked about with the Chiefs never losing. But I'm taking the Ravens. And then Lamar over 70 rushing yards, which I like. I think it's time to let him loose. I think maybe during the regular season, he pulls up, he avoids a hit, etc. It's the playoffs. And I think his legs are like the number one asset in this game on both sides. Like he's the best. Him running the ball is the best thing either team can do. So I think they're going to run him a lot. And I think 70 yards, that tees it down. I think his, his rushing total is like 88 or something like that. So a little more conservative. I think he'll hit that, and I like that bet. Yeah, I like the Lamar part of it, and he was at 100 even last yeah. week. And you're right. They'll dial it up. If they need to run him more in the postseason, they will because it's win or go home at this particular right. point in time, to use the cliche. Okay, so I'm with you on the Lamar portion of this. We are on opposite sides in terms Fair. of the teams. So my plus 260 for this week, this is my shorter parlay, Chiefs on the money line to beat the Ravens. I'm just, I learned my lesson last week. I'm not betting against Mahomes. I know they have injuries and all this. I'm not betting against Mahomes. And on the other side, Mark Andrews is coming back. For Baltimore, I find it weird that Baltimore, who Mark Andrews has been great for them. Their offense actually got better after he got injured. So I I do wonder about that dynamic because likely he's been decent for them. Their receivers, the Zay Flowers of the world, those guys have been coming alive as well so i like the chiefs so i'm just not betting against the chiefs 
all the numbers, all the metrics tell you to go with Baltimore. I'm going with the Chiefs, okay? <laughs> and then I'm going with the Niners to cover an alternate line of two and a half. All they have to do is win by a field goal. I think Detroit's going to be able to put up some points in this game. That offense is electric, but I like the Niners. The weather's not going to be as bad as it is no. or was last week for Brock Purdy and his small hands. So I'm going to go with the Niners to cover two and a half alternate spread Chiefs on the money line. That's for plus 260. I am hoping for a really entertaining game, though, because I think the Lions story is really cool. I, I, I agree. And that's definitely coloring my opinion a little bit. Like, I, they just seem like they have whole country on their side. They're playing really well. Everyone wants to see it, including myself. So we, I guess we're in agreement because I have my next one. This is plus 195. I have Lions plus seven. So we could both hit, you know, somewhere in the middle there, I guess. And just golf. 250-plus passing yards, and St. Brown, five catches, which is very doable. He averaged seven during the regular season. He's averaged even more in the postseason. Goff's hit 250 the last, like, seven weeks. So I think uh, that's very doable. The Niners are very hard to run on, but uh, they're a little more middle-of-the-pack passing-wise. So I think if the Lions are going to have a shot, it's going to be Jared Goff passing Amon Ross St. Brown. So I thought that was pretty safe. Plus 195, too. Yeah, and if you're on the Lions, I think the thing that you would point to, too, is Laporta looked really good last week after two weeks ago. I still couldn't believe he played two weeks ago. He is the new Gronk. He really is. Like, that guy is an absolute truck. He's a beast, and I'm not saying, like, he's going to have the same career, but you think about it. Yeah, and you get the battle of Iowa tight ends, right, because you get Kittle (laughs) on the other side of this. But Laporta, he looked like himself last week. I didn't think, like, he, he looked like himself two weeks ago. So if you're on the Lions side of things, same, you're saying to yourself, okay, they have their number two option, right? Because two weeks ago, I'd argue they really didn't have him because he wasn't, he didn't appear no. as healthy as he did last week when he was a stud in that game. And then also St. Brown is just an absolute beast. So I like that with St. Brown. And they, they go to, you're right about this. They target him so much. That guy is an unbelievable player. I didn't know that dance he did last week was the Baker Mayfield dance. I'm like, what is this? Like, Baker's got a signature dance? I didn't know that. He did it in Hard Knocks, and somehow St. Brown had it ready to go. So I give him, I have even more confidence in St. Brown. (laughs) If he's preparing to play in this game against the Bucs, he had enough time to get down the Baker dance. I mean, he was so confident. He's like, I can practice the Baker dance, and I'll still get (laughs) I'll still get this. Okay. So my long shot parlay, I give you my... Plus 260 parlay. So here's my long shot for plus 512. Five okay. legs. Lamar alternate line of 40 rushing yards. I think he can get this relatively easily, probably in the first quarter, and I'll be feeling good. Pacheco over 63 and a half rushing yards. Baltimore is just 22nd in rush success rate. Pacheco ran for 97 last week, and they need that running game. This isn't the yeah. prototypical Chiefs offense where they're throwing it all over the place. They need to feed Pacheco. I actually thought they should have given Pacheco the ball more in that yeah. game last week. So I'm going Pacheco over the 63 and a half. It's weird to say like the Chiefs want to stay on the field, but they do because the Ravens are explosive too. And with the Ravens, you don't know when you're going to get the ball back because yeah, they can strike quickly, but they can also go down the field methodically. So right. I have Pacheco over 63 and a half rushing yards, then Kittle over 61 and a half receiving yards, something I mentioned briefly earlier is we think about the Debo situation where he's banged up. Kittle had 81 last week. Now, Kittle had seven targets in that game. Only McCaffrey had more. So, Debo, we'll see what the situation is. But at the very least, even if he plays, he's not going to be the same guy. So, I I may look like an idiot for saying that. No, I agree. Kittle over 61 and a half. Safety blanket type guy. I expect a big game from Kittle. 
Armand St. Brown, you mentioned him earlier. I have him for 50 receiving yards. He had 77 last week, 110 the week prior. And then Mm -hmm. I threw Laporta in there just to get a little bit extra juice, 25 receiving yards. He went for 65 last week. So just a 25 yards for him, just a little bit of extra juice. So you can get all those for plus 512. And what I did specifically for this game is I put, or for this parlay, I put three legs in the second game. And oh, actually, no, I didn't. I thought it was the second game. I did that wrong. I put three legs in. But I mean, two of them are all <laughs> to cash lines. out. You mean? Yeah. No, no, not to cash out. Just so I know I get to the second game. So I'm like fired up in the second game. You know what I mean? <laughs> I there's, I nothing, there's nothing worse than when you have a parlay and you get to the second second game and you're done. Or you get to the four o'clock games and you're done. Well, the beauty, Brian, you can just make another bet. How about that? That's true. But I do. <laughs> two of these are alternate lines, 50 and 25. So yeah. Unless no, Kittle I'm, screws me, I should get to the second game. No, I, I'm uh, I'm with you, obviously, on the the Lions props, but uh, I'm, I'm in California right now. Blue skies, the storm's out of there, so it's going to be really nice to be in the 49er Stadium. Sorry, the Santa Clara. But uh, obviously, Purdy couldn't do anything in the rain, so I think they'll pass the ball a lot more with good weather. Yeah, I'm with you, man. And that's the one concern, though, with that team is... I don't know, man. I don't like Purdy concerns me a little bit. That's why I took the alternate line earlier of two and a half because Goff is a he's a really good quarterback. Is he a top five guy? No, but he's good. I think we can all agree he's solid. He may turn the ball over this week and I look like a clown for saying this, but I think he's been a really good quarterback this year. Lamar is going to win the MVP. He's a finalist, although Purdy's a finalist, too. I think it's ridiculous (laughs) that Purdy's a finalist for the MVP, but nonetheless, Christian McCaffrey is too. But then on the other side of it, like you have the greatest quarterback of the new generation, right? Like yeah. the post Brady generation. You have Mahomes, who's been a two time MVP, two time Super Bowl MVP. Lamar is heavily decorated, as we said. You have Jared Goff, who I think is a really solid guy. And then there's Purdy. I, I, I agree. He's definitely the worst of the bunch, though. We've seen crazier things happen with Nick Foles and company, you know, getting to the Super Bowl. But I, I agree with you that he's, he's the bottom of the barrel, at least at this point in the season. Imagine how good this team would be if they didn't trade away draft picks for a Trey Lance. Like they're they're already the yeah. number one seed in the NFC. Like this is the one team that could actually do that. Like fuck up that trade so much, <laughs> and they're still fine. It's incredible. I, I I can't say that I watched you know every single Niners game. Maybe Brock Purdy. It might have been a weird game last week. You know, it was a rainstorm in California that never happened. So That's maybe fair. I'll give him a mulligan. You know. Yeah, but in San Francisco it does though, right? Doesn't it rain a lot? Not really. No, oh. not really. It's like it's like damp, you know. Like it was coming down that game. I don't. Th- I I would look it up. I bet you he hasn't played in more than like five ranked games, if that. Probably less than that. Well, he did play at Iowa though, so he played in some Big Ten conditions. Yeah, true. I don't know what his numbers were like there. Small hands, man. I'm telling you. Although yeah. Goff's got small hands too, so he's probably happy. There's not going to be a weather issue as well. Yeah, and we are too. But you know what? There is going to be a weather issue. Brian is in Baltimore, so. My, my I guess, long shot pick, this is for plus 45, so pretty good odds, is just who I think the Super Bowl matchup is going to be. I have Lions to win, which we talked about. Team of Destiny, America's pulling for them. I want them to come in there and pull up the upset. And then Ravens to win, which I hear you. I talked to you last week where I was like, you know, betting against Mahomes is, is a fool's errand kind of thing. But I think what it comes down to is... I just, the Bills, I didn't think they could do it. They're the Bills, and they lose those games. Well, I think the Ravens is a different story. They're they're primed. They're looking good. They're the best team in the league this year. And as I mentioned, Lamar's running abilities, I think, are really going to carry them. Where the Chiefs, kind of conversely to the Niners, the Niners have a really good uh, 
run defense, but not a very good pass defense. The Chiefs have a really good pass defense, but not a good run defense. And you're going against the best rushing attack in the NFL. Plus, it's going to be like 45 degrees, rainy and windy, which to me tells me the game's going to be one on the ground. And I think that favors the Ravens. Yeah, the one thing I'll say is I'm not going to wish you luck because I'm on the other <laughs> side on both your picks. I'm on. Come on, Lamar, though. I, I'm, I'm, on, from over I'm on San Francisco and I'm on the Chiefs. So <laughs> I would be happy if the Ravens make the Super Bowl just from not a gambling perspective, because yeah. I would like I'm sure a lot of fans felt like this when the Patriots were living in the Super Bowl. It's like, oh, I want somebody else in there. I would like to see Lamar in there. I yeah. don't think Jim Harbaugh can be at the game this weekend because he just got hired as the Chargers head coach. He can't be there in Baltimore gear. He can go to the game, but he can't be in a Ravens. Like he can't be <laughs> dressed up as a Ravens fan, can he? Like he was last week. You never know. He might have a little separate addendum. In his, I mean, think about it. If he was like, hey, Dean Spanos, I want to go to my brother's game. What's he going to say? Like, oh, deal's off. You know, he no, I think he can go, but I think he, he I think he's going to wear Chargers stuff. I don't think he can wear <laughs> the Baltimore yeah. stuff anymore. I just don't think that's a good look. I mean, he got Rabel fired after he dressed up in the Patriots gear. So <laughs> maybe it's a bad look. True. I remember years ago, it was like 2008. Yeah, it was 2008 because it was one of the best Final Fours ever. It was like Kansas mm-hmm. ended up winning the national championship. They beat Memphis because John Calipari didn't follow at the end of the game. Complete clown. One of the most overrated coaches in the history of sports. Yeah, he can recruit. He can't win championships. He won one. And it's like you, me, and anybody listening to this pod could have won that championship because he had the mo- he had Anthony Davis. I mean, he lost with Carl Anthony Towns in that team with Devin Booker. He's having Devin Booker come off the bench. I mean, come on. But anyway, getting back to my original. Oh, what was I going to say? Oh, right, so Roy Williams loses. And he shows yeah. up because he used to be the Kansas coach. So North Carolina loses, right, in the semifinals. Mm-hmm. It's Memphis versus Kansas in the title game. He's in the stands with a Kansas, with Kansas gear on. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you coach North Carolina now. You were you could have you could have won the national championship. And you're there. De- I would have been so pissed if I was a UNC fan. And I'm not. I'm not a UNC fan. But I'm like, dude, you can't do that. OK, cannot do that. You made your choice. Now that's I'd say that's more egregious than Jim Harbaugh going to this game just because obviously he didn't coach this past season. So I bet he'll be there. We'll find out. No, I like we'll him supporting his brother. I'm just saying last week he had Ravens gear on. He can't yeah. wear Ravens no, gear this week. That's coming off. I agree. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. And good luck in all your bets except that one. Oh. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit MDGamblingHelp.com.
org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts, or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.